Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Judges, chapter 6. I think it is on page 238 and 239 in your pew Bible. Our pew Bibles aren't all exactly the same, but we're going to spend a lot of time this morning, really a lot of time the next three weeks, looking at large chunks of God's Word as we kind of do just a whirlwind journey through the book of Judges. We're going to be looking at three of the Judges. We're looking at Gideon today, Jephthah next week, Samson two weeks from today. Adam's going to bring the message on April 6th. And I want to echo what he had to say about Fan the Flame. I am so excited about this concert. We have less than 100 tickets left. Just so you know, all of the costs for the Fan the Flame concerts are raised by sponsors. Now, FCC is one of the sponsors, so we're helping to fund that. But then all the ticket money that is raised, we turn around and we give it away. This, this time we're giving it away to Compassion International, the uh, Baby Fold in Bloomington Normal, and New Life Radio. So we're really excited about what God is doing through Fan the Flame. I hope you will come. I hope you will spread the word. It's going to be a good time. Number two, Colin Mattingly. Stand up, please. He's wearing his Indiana red with us today. Today is Colin's last day with us. We went through this last December when he finished his internship with us. We brought him back. We had some needs. He's been with us, what, almost three months? And he's getting ready to head home with his mom and dad, who are with us as well. We're glad to have you guys with us as well. But I can't say enough about Colin. Give him a hand. Give him a hand. He's been wonderful in the office. He's helped in children's ministry, junior high ministry, high school ministry. Uh, he's done some teaching. For me, I, I've really been thankful for all that Colin has done. I tried to convert him to the Illini Nation. It hasn't happened yet, but there's still time. Um, when you think about doubt, who are some of the great doubters in the Bible? Think about that for just a moment. Who are some of the great doubters in the Bible? The first person that probably comes to mind is who? Doubting Thomas. That's, a, that's an easy one, but think about some of the other great doubters in the Bible. Sarah really doubted she'd be able to have a, a, a child at a, a ripe old age of nine. She laughed out loud. She doubted. You've got Moses. Moses doubted that he was the one that could lead Israel after uh, uh, just a really long time, 400 years in slavery. Uh, God said, Moses, you're the man. He doubted that he was the man. Peter doubted. Uh, Peter was walking on water, doing great, and he started to worry and doubt, and he sank. What about Ananias in Acts chapter 9? Remember, Jesus came to him in a vision and said, go talk to this guy, Saul of Tarsus. Tell him that uh, he's going to play on my team now. And Ananias doubted. He said, should I go do this? And the Lord said, go. And so he went. More than likely, if you are like most Christians, you have lived through a season of doubt in your faith. And some of you are here today, maybe you don't even have a faith in Jesus Christ. You're not there yet. And maybe when you come to church and, and we turn to the Bible or we sing certain songs, you start to doubt. And, and I want you to know you're not alone. Doubting uh, the faith, doubting God at times, is seen multiple times throughout Scripture. And my hope as we look at the account of Gideon, Gideon really struggled with doubt, is that you will maybe have a whole new perspective on how you should deal with the feelings that you have and the struggles that you have. I grew up thinking that if I ever ex um, expressed doubt in God or doubt in His Word or doubt in the church in any way, shape, or, or form, a, a lightning bolt would strike me 
and I would be dead, and that'd be all she wrote, and there'd be a funeral, and people would be sad, and I might go to hell, and all this bad stuff. And, and I've grown to realize that our God is an awesome God. Our God is a mighty God. And so when you see that word doubt, if you kind of connect with it, it's okay. We don't want to keep you there. You don't want to stay in a season of doubt. But we're going to look this morning at Gideon and see how Gideon was able to overcome the doubt that he had and be used by God in a great and mighty way. What causes followers of Jesus Christ to doubt? That's a great question. Think about that for just a moment. What causes people to doubt? Think about it for just a moment. I think for some people it's disappointment with their own life situations. Something has unfolded in life. Maybe a storm of life has visited them, and they're just bummed out. And and so they start to doubt, you know, is God who he really said he was? Is the Christian faith really what I thought it was going to be all about? And and they begin to doubt. For some people, it's been betrayal by a person of faith. I guarantee you that, that if you're being honest, there's some of you today that the reason that you're facing doubt or the reason that you faced doubt in the past is because you looked up to him or you looked up to her and they betrayed you. They let you down. And man, it shook your faith. So there's a lot of different reasons that a person might doubt. I think that there's only three ways, however, that a person can come to the Lord, come before the Lord. Three ways they can approach the Lord. I think we approach the Lord as people of belief, or people who don't believe, people of unbelief, or then you've got kind of this middle category. You want to believe? I want to be there, but I'm not sure I can make it. And I would call that category, that middle area, doubt. And a lot of Christ followers, if they're really being honest, that's where they're at in their life. I've asked my daughter Jordan to come. She's going to read a lot of scripture. We're going to cover almost two chapters of the book of Judges. And she's smarter than I am. She got a much higher score on the ACT than I did. So I'm going to let her read this morning to spare your ears. But we're looking at the account of Gideon from Judges chapter 6 and 7. But really the entire book of Judges could be summarized by this one verse of scripture. It's the last verse in the book of Judges. Chapter 21, verse 25. We'll put it up on the screen. It says, that in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. It meant that everybody was their own God. If it felt good, they did it. If they wanted to worship Baal, they worshiped Baal. If they wanted to build an Asherah pole, they built an Asherah pole. And a whole bunch of times in the book of Judges, they turned to Baal or they built the Asherah poles. And throughout the book of Judges, you will see this cycle. It's called the Judges cycle repeat itself over and over again. And the Judges cycle helps us understand how really immature God's people were. Now, before we beat up on on God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament, I think there's a lot of parallels with American Christians in the Judges cycle today, unfortunately. But here's the cycle, four phases. Number one, Israel sins. They they turn to the Baals, they turn to the Asherahs, they do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Stage number two, God oppresses them. He he strikes them down, usually through a foreign people. This this week it's the Midianites. Stage three is God's people say, you know, we're really not that smart. We really made a mistake. And they, they, they repent. They say, God, I'm sorry. And stage four, every time, every time, God raises up a deliverer. And the deliverer, that we see in the book of Judges are the various judges. You've got Deborah, this week it's Gideon, next week Jephthah, Samson. They're all broken people. 
None of them are people that we're going to say, you know, to your 13-year-old son, I want you to grow up and be like Samson. I want you to grow up and be like Jephthah. You might say, I want you to grow up and be like King David and have a heart after the very heart of God. But you're probably not going to say, I want him to grow up and be like Gideon. But see, that's the point. God uses really imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purpose. God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purpose. I'm not going to have Jordan read the first 10 verses of chapter 6. I'm going to summarize it for you. But here's what happened. Israel sinned and they are oppressed. And the oppression is awful. It's painful. It's no fun. They find themselves absolutely being overrun by the Midianites. And we get to our story. It's a story in eight parts. And Jordan's going to read for us part one, uh, Judges 6, beginning with verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Number one, Gideon doubts that he can fix Israel's seemingly hopeless situation. The Lord comes to him. The Lord is very encouraged by him. And Gideon just flat out doubts. He doubts that God even cares anymore. Where have you been? And he doubts that he is the one. He said, my clan, my tribe, there were 12 tribes. My tribe is the weakest, and I'm the least of all the, of the people in my tribe. Not only are you looking at the wrong tribe, you're looking at a guy that's at the bottom of the pecking order. No way can I, Gideon, be the one. Let's read on. Part 2. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Number two, the Lord communicates confidence in Gideon as a redeemer for Israel. See, Gideon's got a good point. The tribe's not very impressive, and he's not very high up in the tribe. But the Lord gives him two promises. And these are promises that he should take to the bank. Number one, the Lord says, don't worry about any of that. I will be with you. And number two, you will taste victory. We will win. Right then, right there, Gideon should be in. Right there, right then, I should be in. You should be in in such a situation. But Gideon's still doubting. Now, let's be honest. A lot of us, if we were looking at this logically, we would be doubting as well. Part three. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel, of the, the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. 
With the tip of his staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abysrites. Number three, Gideon requests a sign of God's power. He says, I've got to see it. If you're really all in, if you really care for us, don't forget this oppression by the Midianites, this wasn't 20 days, this wasn't 20 weeks, 20 years. An incredible, incredible oppression. And he says, if I'm going to be the guy, I need to see a sign. And the Lord delivers, and what a sign it was. Can you imagine saying to God, God, I'm not going to be all in unless you give me a sign. And and you cook the meat and the unleavened bread, and the next thing you know, fire is pouring down from heaven, and it's consuming the meat and the bread. How many of you would be in? I'd be in at that point. I'd be like, just make sure that I don't get struck down and die. Because that was the thought that God's people had, that if they actually saw the Lord. Remember what happened with Moses when he saw the glory of the Lord? He had to turn his face away. I think Gideon was afraid because he went down this road, he might actually die. And the Lord says, oh, no, 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 you're not going to die. I've got plans for you. We've got work to do. Part four. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Let me catch you off right there. Just real quickly, I teased you with it. But understand, this is how far gone God's people were. There is still an altar to Baal. There is still an Asherah pole. These are idols that they would worship. And it goes directly against God's law, directly against the Ten Commandments. Make no other idols. Worship no other idols. So this is how far gone Israel is. God's people are. Sorry, keep reading. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, Who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded Joash, Bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So, Keep going. (laughs) So that day they called Gideon Jerob Baal, saying, Let Baal contend with him, because he broke down Baal's altar. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizrites to follow him. Number four, Gideon takes a stand for the Lord, kind of. He kind of takes a stand for the Lord. He tears down that Asherah pole. But when's he do it? He does it in the dark. He does it at night so no one will know. It's a a covert operation. It's a secret operation. Reminds me a little bit. Remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus wanted to know more about Jesus, John chapter 3. When's he go to him? He goes to him 
at night. He doesn't want any of his friends to see what's going on. So Gideon is, he, he's moving down that, that scale from complete doubt to complete belief, but he's not there all the way. But this is good. He's doing what he should do. He's just not all out there in the daylight for everyone to see. He also gets a new name, Jerob Baal, part five. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh calling them to arms and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and, and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung, it out, and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Number five, Gideon requires more proof. He wants more signs of God's power in order to take the reins of battle. And once again, the Lord provides proof of his power and his prominence. That he really is who he said he would be. He really is the God that's not just going to get him into the battle. He's the God that's going to deliver him the battle. Now, if I'm God, which I'm certainly not, but if I'm God in this situation, I'm getting really frustrated with Gideon. I did the whole fire thing, consuming the meat and the bread, and, and now you need the little fleece trick. The fleece is wet, the ground is dry, so I do that, and then that's still not enough. You want to make sure that it wasn't just some natural phenomenon, so now the fleece is dry and the ground is wet. Why is God so patient here? What do you think? I, I wouldn't be. Love. Somebody said love. I think it's because the Lord wants to teach Gideon. The Lord wants to teach you that he can handle your doubt. See, we think of God the Father, great and mighty, powerful. But don't forget that he's Abba, Father. He's your Father. He loves you unconditionally. And I don't know about you, when my kids hurt, I hurt. When God's children hurt, he hurts. There's a great lesson in here for us. God can handle your doubt. Move on, part six. Early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. Really easy. Part six, Gideon finally relents and allows God to use them. We've had the fire, we've had the wet fleece, we've had the dry fleece, and now it's go time. Part 7. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may can, not... Can I stop you right there? I think you read that wrong. Did you say it says you have too many men? Is that what it says? Okay, keep reading. Go ahead. <laughs> In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people... Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. 
So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the three hundred, who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. Number seven, the Lord puts into practice the less is more principle of warfare. Could somebody please raise their hand and tell me through your study of history where the less is more principle of warfare has been successful? The veterans are shaking their heads. No, it doesn't play out, does it? 32,000 fighting men and Gideon's ready to go. And God says, no, that, that, that's too many. I'm wondering if Gideon's thinking to himself, Lord, did you misspeak? Do you mean not enough? What do you mean it, it's too many? And so he says, if you're scared, turn back. Two-thirds run. 22,000, goodbye, they're gone. He's still got 10,000. That's not chump change. 10,000 is still a good number. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. Way, way too many. Let's do the whole lap the water like a dog trick. I know in my heart Gideon was praying that thousands of men would be lapping the water like a dog, but only 300 did. And I wonder if Gideon, son of doubt, man of doubt, person of doubt, was thinking, what in the world is going on? Or maybe, just maybe, he's realized that God is who he said he would be. And that this is all part of God's master plan. And instead of trying to figure it out logically, instead of trying to worry, instead of trying to get fired up about strategy, he's just going to trust God. Let's read the rest of the story, part eight. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, For Gideon and for, for the Lord. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. 
Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the three hundred trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah near Tabath. Amen. Hey, give her a hand. Great reading, by the way. She nailed those uh, biblical cities better than I ever could. Number eight, this is the point. Despite an unconventional battle plan, the Lord delivers Gideon the victory. 300 slayed thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. Their weapons were trumpets, empty jars, and torches. And in the end... It wasn't really Gideon, even though he gets credit. It wasn't even the 300. It was the Lord himself that took care of the the foreign uh, occupiers, the foreign army, the Midianites. Great lesson for us today. Too many times we think we have to have it all figured out. I have to be on my A game at, at all times. Or I'm not going to be able to thrive. I'm not going to be able to succeed. I'm not going to be able to win in this world. And the lesson that Gideon learned is, let go of the doubts that you have. Truly trust the Lord. And watch the Lord be exactly who he said he would be. And so as I conclude this morning, I want to give you some encouragements about doubt. And maybe you're not in a season of doubt. Maybe you are in a season of belief and you're on fire for Jesus Christ, but you're saying maybe three, four, five years ago, I was there. Use these encouraging teaching points, talking points to help people that are struggling. I love the opportunity to sit down with people who who are broken. Not because I love that people are broken, but because they're not playing that game anymore, the game that everything's okay. And I know a lot of times I don't have answers. A lot of times you don't have answers. But sometimes just loving and encouraging and praying, lifting them up, can help your friend, can help your family member, can help your classmate, can help your neighbor who is struggling with doubt. So five lessons as we wrap up this morning. Number one, probably most important, God can handle our doubts. Do not be afraid to verbalize like Gideon. God can handle your doubt. I love 1 Peter 5, 7. Should be a life verse. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I mean, God's can, that, that means God can take it. God can handle it. Not only can he take it, he wants it. He wants you to share your heart. He knows already. Cast all your cares on him. He cares for you. Number two, God's methods are always better than man's methods. And the humanists, they cry out and they say that's crazy. They say God is dead. They say there is no God. It's the opiate of the people. You've heard, you've heard all of that before. And I would say to them, don't forget that, that incredible proverb, Proverb 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. God's methods are always better than man's methods. Number three, God has provided evidence of truth for the person lacking in faith. I get bent out of shape 
when I will talk with someone that is not a believer, or maybe they, they used to be a believer, and they've left the church. They've said, you know, that's just silliness. That's when I was a kid. I'm not buying any of that today. And they try to throw out the idea that any person that has faith in Jesus Christ, any person that, that is a part of the Christian faith, they, they just don't have their mind opened yet. Because there's absolutely no way that you can prove anything related to the faith. I love the testimony of John. John was the disciple that, that really didn't die the martyr's death. The rest of them died martyr's deaths after decades of serving the Lord. But John was exiled to the island of Patmos. And he wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and, and the book of Revelation. But at the beginning of 1st John, the very first verse, listen to his eyewitness testimony. I love this. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, we've looked at, our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Speaking about Jesus Christ. I could have put 20 different verses as kind of a proof text, shall we say, for this point. God's provided evidence of truth for the person lacking in faith. Number four, God has given promises of hope and salvation for the obedient. And that really is the point of the whole First Peter series that we just wrapped up. Peter, at the end of his life, before he would die a martyr's death, crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die like Christ died. Before he died, wrote First Peter and Second Peter. But the whole purpose of the book of First Peter was to drive home the point to first century Christ followers, have hope in the salvation of Jesus Christ. Have hope that God has provided this living hope that is alive, this faith that is vibrant. The, the verse that I've chosen here is kind of a peculiar verse to grab a hold of because it's from the book of Jeremiah, and it's written during the darkest time in the history of God's people. The northern kingdoms, the ten tribes up north, they've been overrun. They're, they're no more. The southern kingdom, the two tribes in the south, they're about to be all done. Nebuchadnezzar is coming to town. And Jeremiah is the prophet that's been crying out, repent, and nobody's listening to him. In the book of Jeremiah, if you want to be depressed, I had someone come up after first service and said, I read through the book of Judges during your sermon, and it's kind of discouraging at times. There's so much violence. You really want to be discouraged? Read the book of Jeremiah. I mean, it is a depressing, depressing book. But in the midst of maybe the most depressing book in the Bible, is one of the most hopeful verses in all of the Bible. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. I bet Jeremiah laughed out loud when he heard this from the Lord and got ready to share it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Devastating time in the history of Israel and Judah when Jeremiah receives that word for the Lord. And we throw that verse out all the time as a victory verse. And guess what? It's a victory verse. And so if you find yourself like God's people found themselves during the time of Jeremiah, really discouraged, really downtrodden, really upset because of disease, upset because of family problems, divorce, whatever it may be, and you just find yourself saying there's no hope, remember God's given us promises of hope and salvation for those who are obedient. For those who don't, don't walk away from the faith. Number five, God has provided victory for the faithful. That's really what God was teaching Gideon, I, I believe, in this narrative. 
is that you got to let go of your doubt and just trust me. Because if you've got me, it doesn't matter who else you have. Can you imagine, there was a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for, charity basketball game last night at Clinton High School to raise money for Habitat for Humanity. Did anybody go to that game, by the way? I heard that some of our former basketball stars were really just absolutely awesome last night. Let, let's just look at it like this. Let's say we play that basketball game last night, and we get the alumni teams brought into two different pools of talent, but all of a sudden, LeBron James is in the house, and LeBron James is going to play with the gold team. It doesn't matter who the other four people are, does it? I mean, they're going to win because he's the absolute best. The lesson of the narrative here with Gideon is that it doesn't matter, Gideon, that your tribe is the weakest. It doesn't matter that you're the weakest in your tribe. I'm with you. I'm here. Hear that this morning, friend. It doesn't matter what you're going through. The Lord is with you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's the King James Version, 1 John 4, 4. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're struggling, if you just believe, you will have the gift of eternal life victory over doubt. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And thank you for the opportunity to study a long narrative, a couple chapters long, but, but a powerful narrative. Lord, I know there's been seasons in, in my life as a person of faith where, where I have struggled with doubt. I've been discouraged. I've been downtrodden. And I'm so thankful that you're a God that, that loves me anyway. Loves me in spite of uh, my weaknesses. And God, it's my prayer this morning that people that are on fire for your son Jesus Christ can be beacons of light and encouragement and hope for those that are struggling. And that through it all, we wouldn't do this for our glory. We'd do it for your glory. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.